Hello everyone, this is our first podcast and our second event. We hope you enjoyed Brenda Rubenstein's tutorial on small molecule storage and computation. Please do send us your questions and thoughts as we will be speaking with her this Saturday. Today we are very lucky to be speaking to Rebecca Shulman for the first of our Meet the Molecular Programmer series. Also with me today are the rest of the committee, Anastasia. Hello. Boya. Hello. Georgios. Hello. And I'm Will. Rebecca is currently an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University with appointments in both the chemical and biomolecular engineering and computer science departments. She has an impressive past too, obtaining bachelor's degrees in maths and computer science at MIT and her PhD at Caltech under Eric Winfrey. Before her appointment at Johns Hopkins, she was a Miller Fellow at UC Berkeley. She has received numerous commendations such as the Turing Scholar Award, a DARPA Director's Fellowship, Best at Conference Awards at both FNANO and DNA, and not to mention the prestigious Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. And her work has spanned such simple topics as the origin of life and intelligent DNA nanotechnology. Rebecca, hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I thought maybe we'd start with uh, um, quite a ways back, but a, a quick recap from your early work and research, just to kind of make sure everyone's on the same page. Uh, so how exactly are clays, DNA tile assembly, and the origin of life all connected? Oh my goodness, that's a great question because it doesn't seem obvious at all. Um, so I guess I will say the genesis of this connection, I should give credit to Eric Winfrey, although I think it's, it's an interesting one. So. Clay, when I started my PhD, for sure, was for making pots. But um, in the field of um, the origin of life, uh, there was a... Um, so Graham Cairn Smith was a chemist who had a very unconventional theory about how self-replicating chemistries that could store information might evolve. And in some sense, many people might say that that kind of chemistry where you can both store and replicate and then evolve information would be a kind of, you know, that would be a, a milestone on the origin of life. And uh, Karen Smith's uh, hypothesis was had to do with um, the way clay, some clays are structured, which is that clays can be layered um, so I composed of sort of different uh, strata where you might think of the strata as having sort of discrete bands, but also what are called polytypic. So polytypic meaning there's sort of one of multiple ions or small molecule groups that might be present in each of those. And the idea was that if you could make such a layered structure where the choice of this ion was propagated as the layered grow, you could sort of imagine a two-dimensional structure where information is propagated essentially like a, you could imagine it like a layer cake where the sort of frosting in each layer, I mean, it's a discrete system is sort of the, if you read them top to bottom would be some kind of code and that the growth of that crystal would propagate that code. And then as clays were in, for example, rivers or sort of some fluid environment, they would erode, i.e. which would mean that they would fracture. And then you would end up with, for example, if clays are growing at the edges, if you make cut that in half, now there's two sets of edges for that structure to grow. So Graham Cairn Smith postulated and spent much of his life looking for, but never found conclusively, although he came up with some interesting micrographs and but he wrote extremely eloquently about this idea. And I think it remains popular in the sense that we certainly don't have any conclusive idea of how self-replicating chemistries arose on the earth. And uh, 
and so and potentially in the sense that it involves ubiquitous materials plausible chemical mechanisms and plausible physical mechanisms for creating chemical cycles remains sort of plausible and there are a set of chemists who think about this idea so eric winfrey had the idea that we could connect this notion of clays or at least say something about this mode of propagation using DNA computing and in particular algorithmic self-assembly. So the idea that you can actually propagate a choice of, in our case, a DNA molecule inside, a, in our case, a 2D crystal um, and that we could represent bands by some sequence, some stacking sequence of DNA structures that in our case we would make a sort of ribbon and there'd be some stack of DNA uh, molecules that that choice of D that where you could have a choice of one of several in each row and we could propagate that information as a crystal grew. And so I spent a long time in my PhD thinking about and trying to demonstrate exactly this mechanism. Um, one can debate whether it's relation to clays, um, but I think the notion that information can be replicated in this way, I think it was really exciting to get to use DNA uh, self-assembly and molecular programming to think about in a nice way. So what um, I showed during my PhD is that we could essentially create a nucleus that programmed some sequence of DNA tiles that should grow by programming the sticky ends off of a DNA scaffolded DNA origami and then assemble a lattice that would propagate the series of the sequence the stacking sequence of information that was encoded in the DNA origami and then we had these long ribbon structures and then I worked with Bernie Yerke to design a scheme to actually fracture these DNA structures using really uh, using what are called extensional flows. So I think so the idea being that if you take a fluid and force it through a narrow inlet at high speed, there's a gradient of velocity around the inlet. So the fluid, because it, in, water is incompressible, moves faster through a narrow inlet than the um, then the larger outlet, essentially, you you, uh, you apply a force to these crystals. And so essentially, you sort of pull on the front and don't pull on the back so you can snap them in half. And actually, people use this effect to, for example, shear genomic DNA for next generation sequencing. So it's, it's a common idea. But anyway, we built a device to apply just the right amount of this extensional flow to break our crystals and then showed that they could, once they were broken, actually continue to propagate the same information. So we could grow, sort of replicate, because by breaking them, we created more ends and then grow faster in a second generation. So it sort of suggested by using DNA programming that this was a viable chemical mechanism, of course, in no way prebiotically relevant, or, uh, but that chemistry did support exactly this mode of information propagation. So that was a, a fun idea to think about and maybe a way of using molecular programming that is a little bit unconventional. So in terms of the prebiotic side of things that you just discussed, have you thought about doing similar molecular programming with maybe like RNA, sort of just like an RNA world hypothesis? So I think it's, I mean, I guess when I did this work, we didn't have a good sense of all the ways. I mean, so I think since I've done this work, maybe one could say 
we've learned so many more ways in which one can make regular lattices or assemblies or other kinds of structures using molecules. And that it's possible to create these kinds of structures where information might be propagated much more simply. So one could imagine, for example, trying to make aggregates of, of plain RNA. Um, I guess I feel like one could certainly go down the route of trying to make such an assembly simpler and simpler and eventually try to demonstrate it with something approaching prebiotic RNA. I guess I took, I mean, as I finished my PhD and maybe uh, I felt like I wanted to try um, problems in a different direction. I, I think the problem of the origin of life is a beautiful one. I guess one of the things I thought a lot about during my PhD is that I felt like to, I think we're very, very far away from having a, a sense of how life, like where, the genesis of the life that we have on earth and that one of the challenges was that we don't understand nearly what we should about how complexity can emerge in chemistry in any form regardless of whether it has direct relevance to the origin of life and I felt like that type of problem was one that interested me a lot so how do we understand how chemical systems can propagate information and replicate that information and what are the themes and ideas and principles and sort of design trade-offs that we should understand in a general sense. And so I, I took my research in that direction. But I think it would be I, I think it would be a viable and interesting research problem to ask that question. I should also say there are several scientists who have thought a little bit about this problem in the context of inorganic crystals. So Bart Carr who has been at the University of Washington for many years, has made uh, sort of, I think, salt crystals of some sort, if I recall correctly, where he's been trying to look at similar themes where there the patterns of information are propagated as cracks or defect patterns. So that's another way to think about information. So I think there's certainly some interesting questions to be asked in that space. I think um, one of the challenges is how we think about, you know, how do we, I feel like, I guess my sense is that it, to directly trace anything to the origin of life, we're going to have to think carefully about how to, um, about how to understand how c complexity emerges in these kinds of systems in a much more general way. Um, so how did um, all of that lead um, on to the current work that you're doing? Um, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the work evolves. So, um, so one of the things, yeah, so I guess I can sort of tell you, I feel like where I went from there, part of what I chose to do next had to do with what I said, that I felt like DNA nanostructures and DNA assembly and molecular programming in general seemed like a really fertile place to understand the propagation of information and an understanding of the emergence of new phenomena because of multiple interacting components in some defined way in general and then you know to hope uh, that it has a sort of relevance in terms of our understanding of how you know chemistry can create new kinds of forms um, and so I think that that idea has continued to intrigue me I guess where I went after that work I think had to do with also some of the real difficulties that I identified in trying to make the structures that I assembled. So um, algorithmic self-assembly is incredibly beautiful 
Um, and the sense that you you can encode information as essentially a pattern structure of molecules and propagate that information going forward. But I guess if you were to imagine, I guess it has a, a terrible Achilles heel, which is that information, how information is propagated is strictly local. So essentially you use uh, whatever the structure of a crystal's facet is to decide to go forward and the incarnation, all the incarnations that I had seen. And what that meant is despite, you know, we had spent in the Winfrey lab a long time trying to think about ways to make that propagation incredibly precise. So for example, in your computer, if a single logic gate goes wrong, that could cause, you know, cascading effects, you're going to get the wrong problem to your, you know, addition, we don't do any but the chances of that happening are absurdly low. I think the last time I heard it was 10 to the minus 23rd. But the, the best we could do in the lab, I think after I spent a very, very long time and only in certain cases was say 10 to the minus fourth, which I think in terms of, so if I were to build a crystal composed of a, you know 10,000 units, which if I were to make a 3D crystal is not very large, um, the size of, of the range over which I could propagate information is disturbingly small. And I guess I wanted to think about ways I could build materials where information was propagated in other kinds of ways. So how do we have longer range communication? And to me, that seemed like an interesting theme that had not been well explored. So I, and in particular, I also really but I still loved, I guess, the idea. One of the things that drew me to the project I worked on as a PhD is I was fascinated with this notion of evolution and in particular the capacity of Darwinian evolution to learn or search through space on its own and the capacity for molecules to, to execute those algorithms I think was a compelling sort of entry in the field for me as, as it was for many people, but drawing on, for example, the original demonstrations of uh, Len Edelman on using sort of generating random assemblies and sorting them as a means of doing DNA computing in the 1990s. So I guess the problem, so I tried to think for a while about ways to think about kinds of search problems that still involve structure but involve less local interactions. And so what I worked on after that and during my postdoc and also as I started my lab was this idea of, um, I guess what I called point-to-point uh, -point assembly, which is essentially the idea that I want to use growing assemblies to search through continuous space. And in practice, what it is is sort of akin to the problem of uh, bridge building by ants. So essentially, if ants see a chasm, they want to build a bridge across it. So ants will sort of lay down in the chasm and actually form a sort of chain. And eventually, they're going to grow that chain toward the other side to form a bridge. And actually, in practice, they might grow from both sides and sort of connect in the middle. And I wanted to know whether molecules could do something similar. So if I gave them two physical points in space, could I actually instruct some molecular monomers to actually construct bridges? And to me, this was the sort of problem that involved non-local interactions and, or so, and the sense that the way we envision doing this is having two structures grow from these two points as two linear structures. So essentially, instead of a chain of ants, we're going to have a tube of DNA. Um, that grows via the attachment of small particles at its end, so DNA tiles. And the idea is that these structures could actually diffuse, and so their ends, if they found one another, could connect to form a, a chain. And so I spent the next period of time working on that problem. I guess I was also sort of generally interested in the concept of things like graphs or how do neurons form networks and sort of this big question of, so this was like the simplest incarnation of that very general problem of how you may 
built to me that I could investigate with experiments. And so um, we've, since that time, I think, thought a little bit more about, about that theme that has gotten a little bit closer to some of those ideas. But I was very fascinated by the idea that somehow there's an algorithm for building very complicated networks of components and that this was sort of the simplest thing. I, if I were to form a graph, this is a way to form a directed series of edges between them. And so that was, I guess, yeah, uh, a very different kind of problem, but it was exciting for me because it, I think just investigating sort of, I chose it based on things that I felt like were just not quite right about what I was studying. And I think that's an interesting theme to go forward. Like, how do we reapproach this problem uh, to, you know, and that kind of problem is very different, of course. The search that we're doing is in no way similar to the search in evolutionary space of sort of sequences of stacking patterns. But I think I still do find that, that really enjoyable. So for, for most of these things, you're using square tile nanotubes as the building blocks, essentially, right? So in that work, we definitely use square tile nanotubes. Um, I think my lab has started thinking about, well, I guess they're rectangular, but yes, a rectangular lattice. Um, so it's got a much simpler structure than, for example, the really elegant crisscross architecture. Um, I guess, yeah, it, I think one of the other things that I liked about working with those structures also in terms of just trying to think about research is I also liked the idea, I wanted to pick this, like I think DNA is a wonderful tool, but I guess in the sense that I was building physical structures, I wanted to pick a structure that was very simple in the sense, like if I could get away with it, then that would mean that this was sort of a chemical theme that would transcend, you know, the particulars of DNA, DNA being a great tool to sort of precisely control affinity and kinetics and um, and other types of things that people use throughout, I should say, uh, areas like soft matter physics for exactly this purpose. Um, and the, so, I, I guess what I liked about the tubes is that they were sufficiently simple. Like I can tell you sort of physically what properties I would need and in fact have thought about now how we could implement similar ideas with very different chemistry, some with different kinds of DNA, but also with, for example, proteins or even small molecules type structure. So anyway, I think we, the idea was that we wanted to pick, I think, the simplest system that would solve the problem. I mean, I guess having worked with rectangular structures, I can, for example, certain things were in some ways hard, although I think we have an interesting ways to solve them now. Um, but for example, controlling nucleation is much easier if you have an architecture uh, that has a high coordination number versus a rectangular structure in many cases. Um, but it can be done. And I guess the other point that we learned is actually precisely controlling nucleation wasn't the, like you, you don't need to be perfect at it. You just, for our for what we were doing, that what we were actually good enough. And I kind of like learning those things that essentially that it's hard to, every molecule is so badly behaved that I really like thinking about problems where you have to sort of control a parameter, but it doesn't have to be totally perfect because it's just so hard to get molecules to in any way behave super, reliably in enough that you would you know be able to say this ne you know this kind of emergent phenomena never happens because molecules are just very messy so is the local error rate you mentioned earlier the biggest challenge you're seeing right now or are there other challenges maybe constrained to 
square tiles or just more broadly in terms of implementing the experiments you want to do. So the nanotubes that we grow don't actually propagate information in the sense that there's really only one thing they can do. Their, their length is essentially their information coordinate. Um, you could worry about defects. So for example, do you make a good lattice? But remarkably, what we discovered is that actually the lattice that we could grow without being that careful was really beautifully good. And one of the interesting things that we saw was that if you grew this tube, so you could grow this strange creature, which is a crystal with no edge. So you could think of, for example, if you have a cylindrical tube-shaped crystal and you formed a circle, as the toroid, you would have no edge. And so that's kind of a weird object, um, which it's, so we grew something similar by essentially putting on two origami caps that essentially attach to both ends of a facet. And when you do that, what we found is that you could essentially heat up the system and that those crystals wouldn't melt. And the reason they melted was that they had no edge. Um, but crystals that didn't have a structure on both ends don't melt. And that is actually uh, wouldn't work. It would actually fail pretty uh, catastrophically if there were frequent defects. But we don't see that. And we've learned more and more that we don't have to be careful at all about defects. Um, it seems to not be part of the problem. So I guess there, the we're not really propagating information inside the assembly so much as using the assembly structure and sort of diffusive motion to do a search through physical space. And in that sense, I, yeah, I guess the error rate might be missing your target. But there too, we were surprised to see how difficult that was to do, actually, which is interesting. So what kind of other difficulties have you experienced? So for example, in grad school, what, what were the main, well, uh, what are some fun memories and what are some challenges that, that really made it, made it difficult? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it would probably be more fun than hearing me tell you too much about my random scientific thoughts. Um, so I think the PhD is probably one of the most challenging parts of what I think one's life. I don't think in a bad way. I think I have some very fond memories of um, doing science as a PhD student. I mean, it wouldn't surprise most people, I think, to hear that some of my happiest memories in terms of the science are really getting to the point where I finally knew how to do the you know kinds of experiments that I wanted to do. I knew how to design the forms of inquiry that I wanted. And I went in every day and I didn't have meetings. I didn't have like other obstacles. I didn't have to like plan budgets or whatever it is that, you know, professors do that is not as fun. And uh, I just got to wake up every morning and essentially have planned my experiment the night before. And I went in and I just did that. And I was just running through, you know, I had to do 30 more of this experiment to get enough, you know, or like I knew the sort of sequence of experiments. And it was really great. I really, um, I'm not a fantastic experimentalist necessarily. I feel like that's not what drove me to do science in terms of being a bench scientist, but it's fun to be really deep into this sense of inquiry and also to have this very prescribed sense that this is sort of your goal and that you've committed to that question and this class of ideas and that you come in every day to to do that. And I really enjoyed that sense of then, you know, for example, first, you know, I can tell you 
you know, I think the first thing I ever figured out that was worth writing a paper about, the first, you know, time I really came up with my own model to explain data and had to convince my professor that this was actually a good model. And he was like, oh, he's like, I wasn't, didn't, wouldn't have thought that would work. But then once you explained, he, he believed it. And that was, that's really exciting. And then, um, yeah, I think the idea of being able to give your, you know, giving my thesis talk is, of course, really, I mean, I found that really exciting. Um, my tenure talk, so I'm actually an associate professor and an assistant, but thank you for <laughs> making me feel younger. My tenure talk actually had some technical difficulties and it was, uh, the there was some projector software update that didn't work, so everyone was angry and waiting for 20 minutes, so that was terrible. But my PhD thesis uh, was really fun. I really just loved, it was a nice story. I loved sharing it. And it's, uh, I was really proud. And I will say as a faculty member, it's still some of the best days of my job to see my students graduate because it's just, I think it's, it's, it's kind of like a wedding. It's like ritualized. It's very exciting. It's a big transformation in your life and everyone's happy. And I guess, but, you know, from the science point of view, it's like, I watch my students, I'm like, wow, I wish I had given that talk. That is awesome. And, you know, I, I just love that transformation. So for me, also, that sense of pride and accomplishment after having worked so hard, I think, was certainly um, important. So the less good things, I guess, um, I think there are different classes of things. I mean, a PhD is very, so though there's this wonderful part where you find the right problem and you're chugging along and you're, you know, and maybe there's several problems, you know, the, depending on how you structure your PhD. But there's also the times when you're clear, you're not only lost, you know you're lost and you're not making progress. You're either working on a project that doesn't work and you're not sure how to solve it and something's going wrong and you don't have any sense of how to get out of that space or worse you know that you feel like the research is there's just something bigger wrong with the way you're approaching this problem or the kind of science or the kind of question you're even asking is just incremental and not the right thing or not useful for the bigger problem you want to solve that can be very draining and I feel like I felt maybe a little of all those things at different times in my PhD I had technical problems that delayed my work by several months I had but I think the Lowest parts were certainly the ones where I really didn't know what I should do for my thesis and I hadn't done much of anything in the first few years of my PhD and I felt like this sense of maybe I was just really, I don't want to say failing at this, but just not going anywhere and I think that was that was very difficult. Um, so I think it's very hard to figure out, I guess the problem with a PhD is that a, ending up with a good PhD means a chance for all students sort of ending up in that weird place where you haven't gone the right direction. And so there's risk, you know, if you haven't taken, if you taken a risk, then maybe you ended up there. Or maybe, you know, your advisor gave you a terrible problem, I don't know. Um, but I certainly feel like that's a, a very difficult part. And I mean, there are the other difficult parts, which is, you know, learning to write your first paper and all the drudgery and the long times it takes to do work. My advisor was, very, very sort of, you know, had very, very strong opinions about how he wanted things to be in my paper. And I'm not always the most detail-oriented person by nature. So I think I made 45 versions of my, for one of my figures for one of my first papers, which 
I can't say I enjoyed. Um, I, I the, the figures came out well, and it was probably, I think I might, I, I hope I don't get to 45 versions with my students, but I, I understand what he was doing in, in retrospect. But those are, I mean, I think at the time, those are, those are hard. Um, they're hard things to, to do. And they take a tremendous amount of energy that I think is hard to comprehend. Uh, you know, like as a faculty member, sometimes it's hard to remember how difficult they, they were for people. But I guess, and every, everybody finds certain aspects of the PhD, diff, different aspects of the PhD difficult. I think. So that's also kind of hard to generalize. But those are maybe some array of my own thoughts. Yeah, I think those will resonate with, with a lot of our listeners. It certainly resonates a lot with me, uh, some of those challenges. Do you have any advice for people going through the same same difficulties? Yeah, well, I guess I guess I forgot to add one thing, which is I think one of the hardest parts of a PhD is it's like the worst thing, but I think maybe it's a good thing, given how hard it really is, is that it's very, you can't quit, right? So after about your third, I guess in the US, the PhD for us would be about five years, maybe in Europe a little less, but sort of about halfway through the typical PhD length, you're so far from finishing, but you can't quit because it's like the worst, terrible idea. And, you know, and there may be various reasons to quit. Like maybe you're frustrated, you feel like you're not doing anything, but maybe you're, you know, the people you work with are horrible, or maybe you just hate this field. Like there are many reasons why you might be stimulated to, feel that way but you can't and so feeling like that feeling of trappedness I think is maybe one of the worst overall things and I want to say maybe to those of you out there feel this it's structurally built in and I think it probably should be addressed but I don't have any specifics but I think that's one of the most challenging things um so maybe in terms of advice I feel like you're not alone on that one and so you um but so I guess maybe the lesson I learned from that is I feel like if I have a student who I'm not really sure is really like willing to just like do anything like is just so passionate to get through, I just am very clear to them right up. I'm like, it's gonna this is the best moment. If you're not thrilled your first year with everything that's going on, find a different direction because it's gonna there's gonna be this point where you're you've got no return. And if you don't have that like love of doing this thing that's almost irrational or the drive or something that's going to really push you through, you're not doing this. If you have any ambiguity, right, going in, pick a better, you know, doesn't, not saying don't do a PhD, but I'm saying find that thing that you just cannot imagine not doing because otherwise it's, it's brutal. Um, so I think that's a big one. Um, I think, I guess maybe my advice might also come from having mentored PhD students now and also, I felt like as I mentor more PhD students, my thoughts on how getting through, you know, getting, doing, having a good PhD experience and really growing and meeting your goals as a PhD student have evolved. And I think in terms of what is going to help you out, um, I mean, everyone knows, you know, being really smart doesn't hurt, but it's, but the, there are these other things that I think make a huge difference in how people do. Um, one of the most important lessons that I think can't be stressed enough, and I, as a computer scientist, are entirely antisocial, and I love nothing more than sitting in front of my desk and reading, doing analysis, writing code, and seeing what happens when it works, and like thinking and not talking to anyone for a long period of time. 
that said, I guess I can see a very strong correlation between people who are really good at reaching out to others, to ask questions, to work together, to seek out their expertise and to work communally and success in certainly in what I do, but in, in my, and so I constantly, and also asking for help. So saying, for example, like this is not working, I'm not really sure what to do and sort of prompting not only your own advisor, but your colleagues to help you solve that problem and also getting feedback. So what, you know, how could I be better? And then more importantly, listening to that feedback, which is brutal, right? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing most of you have gotten back a paper and the reviewers like, this is not interesting or, you know, says something mean or wrong. And you know, so we're filled. And every professor, I think, that I've ever heard of has had grant proposals rejected, and we've all been rejected from jobs and schools that we wanted to go to. It's hard, and it's constant in academia. I guess learning from the feedback that you get in a way that's productive is really important. So how do you take what, or, you know, the review, there's this phrase that, for example, the reviewer is always right. The reviewer doesn't, so for example, if they say your work is garbage, that's not right but they're the point is they're coming honestly most i'd say 90 percent of reviewers are honest and so you know taking feedback from people and being honest with yourself and but also not beating yourself up over it in the sense that we're all struggling to improve at any given time is, is really important for getting through and learning to live with criticism and failure is a really like emotionally is very difficult but it's incredibly and it's important it's not something i started out being good at and I'm probably still not good at but it's this, it's really critical for sur survival I think maybe one of the my pieces of advice is to not take things personally that almost nothing in science is personal it's not about you it's just about the experiment not working it's about you know you just things could be you know we're all working and improving and I feel like that can be a hard lesson I've, I know I've seen students that when you know you say well why don't you try it this way because their design of their experiment or their inquiry was you know I, I felt like I had suggestion if you take that personally as a criticism that you're bad or weren't doing a good job before it's going to make this process very difficult um, I, I'm not saying you should start that way but learning that is for me has been certainly helpful and it's helpful to go through everything that you go through in terms of applying for jobs and applying, you know, sending in your papers is trying to look at feedback as a learning experience. And, you know, that's the ideal, right? We're down here, but remembering, trying to, to keep perspective about that. Um, I guess, yeah, so I think those are, are big things. Um, I definitely would say read lots of papers. Uh, that joke about a, a, an hour in the library saving a month in the lab is not actually a joke. Um, so it's, but of course the challenge is knowing what papers to read. How do you find the right papers? How do you read them carefully? It's a really important, and how do you learn, how do you learn from your colleagues, right? So um, more generally, do you go to talks or, so I think that's really important, but I've noticed that when students really prioritize that and also when they get into a new, you know, try a new kind of experiment, they go read five papers about it and learn about what different people have done carefully or, you know, when you take on a new technique, really take the time to understand what related work is like in the field will, is is challenging and it's not as much fun, honestly, as trying stuff out on your own but it's really important for making progress and also contributing to science as a whole. And I will say I've noticed a big correlation between students who make that a priority and, um, and 
people who and being successful going forward and really also that gives you the opportunity to find really cool solutions to your problems if you get good at solving because you can build, read an unrelated paper and learn the you know get an idea from it as well so on the topic of spending a month in the lab um did how what was your what, what was it like going from somewhat like a, a kind of a theoretical background computer science and mathematics and moving into doing bench work what was that transition like did you have someone mentor you or were you kind of left alone and said, someone said, figure it out? I feel like it was probably somewhere in between. So um, that's a great, yeah, it's been a while. Um, so I actually, I mean, I studied computer science and math. I should probably back up and say that I probably came in with some background in experiments. So my my mother is a biologist and I definitely got this idea that I was sort of interested in molecular science in college. So I did this very silly thing, which is instead of taking some kind of computer science lab to satisfy my lab requirement, I spent the second term of my senior year doing biology lab with a bunch of pre-meds. So I learned how to pipette and do, and I guess I also worked uh, as a um, high school student at the National Institutes of Health, where I actually did a lot of uh, RT-PCR. Um, to do analysis of um, RNA in uh, rats. Um, so I had some background, although certainly the particulars of my experiments were all new. I don't think I had a formal mentor who was specifically interested in my project, but there were definitely more senior people around who were helpful, who would kind of show me some things about what to do. I'm trying to remember, uh, probably Paul Rodemint, who started as a postdoc at the time that Eric Winfrey started his lab was probably uh, probably taught me a number of techniques as well as Eric himself um, having done so um, yeah I think but in terms of things like pipetting I think I figured out a lot on my I mean you know like in experimental design I figured out a lot on my own although I don't think that's necessarily wise. So one of the things I like, I try to do in my lab is really pair senior new students with a particular mentor for the first six months. Whatever kind of project they're doing, I feel like they just need, you need somebody you can go to that you feel like is charged with answering your questions and has the time to do so um, to help you go forward and feel some responsibility for doing that. So I, I think that's important. I mean, I think you, any there are many ways to run a lab. I remember once I uh, had a seminar speaker who runs a very large lab, and I asked the speaker how he managed such a big lab because I felt like you know I had to see all my students, and he told me he said you know he's like for the first two years he said I don't talk to my students at all. It's like they don't. So there's sort of in that lab, there's some self-organized form where students learn from each other. There's not, you know, and, and it works out. He's very successful. So I feel like, you know, those there, I think it's important to say there aren't, mod, you know, good models, but I guess, you know, the right model, there's sort of, you know, if it's working for you and for students are happy and you're productive, it's probably a good model for you. Um, so, yeah, I think, but I guess, it took me a long time to understand how to organize and plan experiments. Um, I think this also is, I mean, I feel like the project management side of experimental science and to some extent computational science, depending on what you do, is um, underappreciated in the sense that, you know, you can, I guess I learned by the end of my PhD to the night before plan all of my experiments and like what, you know, maybe even for the week plan what I was doing and really have a sense of where I was going kind of like a, 
but also fit in different things. I didn't have like a full schedule, but I kind of understood what could be done in one day and was very purposeful and organized about it. And then also on a longer time scale, you know, I knew I need to do this series of experiments to get something done. And uh, I think that kind of skill, I definitely didn't have, I mean, I, I learned that for me. Um, probably other people do things differently, but I definitely have found in talking with students that if I'm explicit and give advice about that, not just like here's the experiment you should do, but also how you might plan and do experiments, that that's really, for some students, it's really important because that notion hadn't occurred to them. Um, so I actually feel like that, even though learning specific new techniques is always talked about, that aspect of training to me, I think in terms of planning your time is really key especially as you move from being a beginning grad student when you have all the time in the world to like later in your career when you suddenly realize you have to get things done um before you know and all that you want to sort of you have all these things you want to do so you have to figure out how to get them done so conversely i guess do you have any tips for those people who may maybe actually do come from like very experimental backgrounds and might be trying to break into the theoretical side of things um i mean for example like or or maybe to those people who are kind of stuck in the middle like myself as an engineer i i i'm kind of somewhat confident in the lab but i'm not exactly able to go and on, on the theoretical side of things i can't exactly go down and prove a theorem just so as easily as kind of the more purely theoretical people can yeah, no, I think that's that's a great question. I guess I didn't really answer sort of how I learned to be an experimentalist, so I could maybe go back and think about that. I think the for both of these things, I guess the well there there's practice and I think ta- like definitely having somebody to like not only work with but get regular feedback and also be willing to ask the question, which is going to get you the constructive criticism, for example. So, you know, that if you're not doing something right. So I feel like those are all key things to learning a new skill. And also maybe not underrated is asking the really, like, that's actually really important is asking the stupid question. So the thing that you're sure everybody in the room knows but you and that, like, you're actually, for example, so, you know, you're like, what's a lemma, right? <laughs> like, I mean, if you were learning to prove theorems, and I'm sure you probably know that, but I'm saying if you didn't, there's no point in not, you know, you can go look it up, right? So you should, I mean, Wikipedia and, and you know, internet and the scholar resources are your friend. But if it's not clear what some, you know, what something is or why somebody's doing something, I feel like it's a really, really important part of learning a new skills to identify what you don't know how to do and ask. And it's not really necessarily like, you know, for example, and, and also asking people, for example, how they got somewhere. So how did you get that step from, you know, what, what made you think and like, or, you know, just how did you write this proof? You know, because they will present when you go see a proof, they'll present it. But it's like, you know, it's created in some nonlinear fashion. I mean, it might be created straight backwards, right? I mean, that's a really, you know, that's a great, I mean, it's a, actually a classic mathematical technique to do so, right? That, you know, uh, so... I think those kinds of operational questions, how do you do something, where did you go for somebody, I feel like most people are willing to answer because they're really interested in their own work. So you ask about somebody else and you think about it. So how do you do something like somebody else? I guess the other part that I think one of the most valuable pieces of advice I've ever been given to learn to something new, which is um, 
whenever you start any kind of scientific inquiry, no matter what your technique, your, your technique will be, is sort of knowing what the form that you want the answer to be in, right? So if you, for example, want to understand, you know, why do fish swim, right? So what kind of answer are you looking for, right? Do you want, for example, an experiment that if I pull off a fin, this fish doesn't swim anymore? Do I want like a fluid mechanical theorem, like the Scala principle? Do I want like a computer simulation? And so one can take that idea and actually break it down even more, which is why do I, you know, so example, if I want to learn how to prove theorems, I feel like if you're not going to, that, that probably won't happen. But if you say, I really want to understand sort of like this, the answer to this kind of question, and this is the kind of answer I want, then I feel like you can work back and think about what are the pieces I need to start to address that, what tools am I missing, and really ask very specifically about these techniques. I guess if you really want to learn how to prove theorems, there's a couple classic books, I guess, about logic. One is called like How to Prove It. And I read, I think in college, it's very good. But um, which is just a very constructive thing. I think the other thing that as a, an engineer I learned is that there are sort of methods that you can use. There are heuristics for almost anything. So, you know, they probably won't get you there. But if you don't know about these heuristics, it's probably, you know, setting you back so and these are true for her experiments they're true for you know all kinds of experiments for you know for whatever kind of inquiry we're doing and I'm very I really like understanding process so I think those are I think as I and I think you can see that from my answer but like why do you think why, why do we see so many um people who are essentially or people coming from a theoretical background theorists moving into disciplines which lend themselves very well to experimentation for instance like for example in synthetic biology many many labs at their head have people who started out as theorists in say pure physics or maths and have ended up starting uh, purely experimental labs which are then guided by like why why is the why does the net flow seem to be in that direction and why do we not see or well, yeah people moving in the direction i think i think the answer might be purely operational which is there are more the ratio of students to jobs and like it's just very there's just many more theorists like there's not a lot of theory jobs and so then all the people who, the those jobs are probably mostly you know you you're going to be most competitive if you have the most experience perhaps i mean you could answer that operationally maybe that i mean the other i guess i can say for myself Self. I mean, having started as a math major and thought about it, I guess a couple things drove me from it in terms of making it a career. And I guess one of them was also that there are only so many jobs as math professors. So, you know, you really have to be really excellent at it to, to get that job. Um, but maybe the other thing was also, I think there were a couple other things, but one of which is, you know, I went to like, uh, I actually spent a little while as the PhD student at MIT, and I remember thinking in CS theory, they were, you know, they were like, okay, well, here's matrix multiplication, and so, you know, we're trying to shave these exponents off, you know, like we have like a order 2 to the 0 0.006, and we want to get down to, you know, 2 to the 0 0.003, and I probably don't even have the orders right here, but the point was it was a sort of small, like there are these big problems in theory that take 30 years right, or 100 years or 300 years depending on the kind of problem and you know this idea that you're going to work on this very very technical piece of a piece of a piece it's not that it's not worthwhile it just it didn't necessarily appeal to me at that 
time. Um, I guess in terms of molecular programming, though, I guess for me, what drove me from theory, from experiment, like from theory at the time that I worked to doing more experiments, is this idea. Because I should say that I really started out doing much more theory than I ended up doing as a, even as a PhD student. Um, is that it's very difficult in chemical sciences to make a really good theory that you can stretch that much without having some experimental sense. So for example, we can make theories about algorithmic self-assembly, but if the problem is that we don't have the model right, and that for example, I think one of the problems I found is that this sort of assumption of perfect cooperativity of interactions between multiple bonds, for example, is just not physically correct, then you could spend years on this crazy trajectory that's not, it's going to take you places that end up having a limited value in reality. Because it's not pure math, right? In the end of the day, when we think about molecular programming, our goal is that it's relevant to molecules. So if your conception of your molecule is not quite right, then you're in trouble. And so it seemed to me that if that you really either needed the experimentalist to work with you or you know to have that data out in the field that's going to keep you calibrated or in my case i felt like there wasn't anyone doing that so i said well gee i gotta go in the lab myself because otherwise there's not going to be the data i need and i think it might be the case that for many people who go from theory to practice there was some aspect of that that they really got curious about something they understood they needed data from experiments but none of the experimentalists wanted to solve that same problem so they're like well i have to go do it myself um in the sense of doing experiments i think i have seen some students go the other direction a little bit i I don't know that I can answer for the world at large about why that isn't a problem, but I don't think it's the case that there's some fundamental difficulty going up that hill per se that just can't be done and that experiments are easier because I feel like they're very different, but to be, and some experiments are very easy. Honestly, some computer programs, you're going to like press the same button a lot of times and switch some parameters. And so it's not that it's easy, but it's also not necessarily deep in the sense that it requires like a P, you know, PhD level understanding of abstract mathematics at all times. So I don't know. And I guess I would say though, now with, for example, machine learning, maybe for example, or, you know, I feel like people are actually going back in the lab. Like if you, you do see a little bit of this migration, the other direction where people see this opportunity to go do this new kind of analysis and that you have experimentalists and I've seen them go back and start doing much more, comp maybe not theoretical, but much more computational work. So I think that we'll see how that goes going forward. So as you hinted at, in addition to the sort of theory versus experiment divide, like our field molecular programming is super interdisciplinary. Like, for example, for your experiments, presumably you need a decent enough understanding of computer science, but also maybe how like DNA works and maybe the biochemistry involved. So in some sense, sometimes it feels like somebody to succeed needs to be like a jack of all trades and understand a lot of things and be able to put that together. Can you speak at all to that from your experience? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I guess I think Ned Seaman has a good joke about that, about how you have to be a brewer, a chemist, physicist, molecular biologist, artist, like mathematician and, and computer scientist. And I think that's, you can look at it that way, but I think maybe to me i think fields like molecular programming really point out 
the power of having that, you know, not looking at the world strictly from a, a traditional physical, like sort of department or discipline centered perspective. But I guess maybe to point out that we all only have 24 hours in a day and it's not that molecular programmers get to do three college degrees. It's just that you have to, or you know, three amount times more coursework. I don't think that's right. We have to figure out how to learn what we need to learn and how to, um, and how to use that. So I guess that also sort of comes into this sense, like I told you, what are the things that make students successful? What I found are people who ask people for help and people who read a lot in the like in journals and books. I feel like that might speak to that idea that our the sense of what our background needs to be will evolve. You don't need to know everything. So I definitely don't know a lot of things in chemistry or chemical engineering where I work. But I know, you know, I know DNA and RNA chemistry pretty, you know, much more deeply than any other type of chemistry. I know the kinds of chemistry that apply. Like, I don't know much about solid state chemistry or physics, for example, because I didn't learn them. But as I needed to learn things, they went and go and found them. And I feel like that's what I see you guys do that, you know, as you learn things, as you need to know things, you go figure out how to learn them. And that that's and that every you know that you can go from very different kinds of backgrounds to appreciating you know different ways of thinking and i think that's kind of how we have to work but i also feel like that's an incredible strength for students so i tell students you know whether or not you stay in academic research that this ability to figure out this constantly evolving landscape of you know not just what i need to know now some new tool you know crispr's you know it's like didn't exist 10 years ago right so we had you know the um, you, well, maybe not quite 10, but you get my point. But then, so you have to learn about it and, and, you know, become an expert in this new area, but also that, yeah, maybe I need to understand, for example, a little bit about like, you know, we need to know what different things like about protein chemistry or, you know, some new analytical technique. Like I need to actually know some physical chemistry to understand how it is that NMR works because that's, you know, so those but I feel like just sort of thinking about how to learn those things to us is a strength I guess the other part is of course putting all those things together into a coherent way to ask how do I do how do I shape my work and I think my point about the knowing the form of the answer you want is super helpful like I feel like I focus tremendously on how like what is the problem I'm trying to solve and what am I looking for and really then focusing so that then I can identify what I need to solve those problems. So whether it be an expert, something I don't know. So I think we're always going to be learning. I think the question is figuring out how to use what you know and how to fill in those gaps when you need them is something that I think is a strength. I think it's really exciting that you guys have formed this organization. Because as I said, I think talking to one another is probably the most important thing that one can do. Because I guess one of the things I've tried to do in my lab is have people with very different kinds of expertise. So, you know, I have, phys I have a physicist, I have a surface chemist, I have like, you know, says process people who really love process engineering. I have somebody who loves to do complex simulations. I have a couple of biologists. And I feel like that kind of interaction, you know, biophysicists, like these people who come at the problem from very different ways and can converse, that that's a really exciting thing about our field. And so it's not that you need to know everything, but you need to know how to talk to people who know all these things to figure out how to get the problems solved. And then, as I said, how to learn your part and how to fill in gaps so that you can understand what's going on. Those are very encouraging. So I wonder, um, 
if a student only have one um, side of the background and um, and he may feel that he the stuff he does not know is a lot and he may develop imposter syndrome like feels like oh he does not belong to this field and there's so much stuff that he does not know I wonder if you have ever experienced imposter syndrome or if you have ever if you have any um, advice on that yeah no that's a great question I mean I think it's I mean I think the that term has pervaded society for us hopefully to feel like uh, I've definitely experienced imposter syndrome and it comes in big you know flashing signs like I don't belong in science you know I'm gonna quit to like these micro things like oh they're talking about this thing I don't know about so I'll just let everyone else decide when you kind of understand there's something not quite right going on right so it comes in all these these forms and they're all different um I think the key is to just trust yourself a little bit and to do I mean I guess also recognize that idea right that it's it's always there's always this sort of self doubt a little bit and um but I think to do you know to I guess I'm not sure if I have deep advice about this but I guess as I said one thing I feel like maybe help me that you wouldn't expect is actually the quest the answer asking dumb questions and when I say dumb questions I really mean they probably were dumb and it's not like people like oh that was actually a really good question I don't care maybe there were questions I asked because I wasn't paying close enough attention to what somebody was saying but I feel like it's that almost generally if you were polite about how you ask a question people are very happy you know but like oh like you use those pipettes like I mean I've had real I remember as a grad student like I did not know how to use two-part or as a postdoc I did not know how to use two-part epoxy and I spent like in it like six hours trying to like glue something together so two-part epoxy is essentially comes in two parallel toothpaste tubes and you squeeze them out together and the two components react to form a like a plastic that's a solid and the two components that are reacting are a liquid so the way you dispense it anyway I had this idea that you applied them like in series and I was like very carefully like pressing one of the tubes all around all the the, for those very complicated glass things I was trying to make for my biophysics experiment and I was so frustrated and then I would apply the other one and this just didn't work right because the tubes are designed to like create this kind of mixing I was like trying to make the simple sort of fluid cell and I spent like hours and hours and hours and I finally asked and so and you know it was a really dumb question because honestly what I was doing was really silly and I could have looked up on the internet how to use two-part epoxy and figured this out on my own I also not been able for example find the microscope power switch and those things add up you know but I think the key is to that I guess I'm telling you these things also to point out that you can survive even if you have these and you know maybe your silly things that you knew you know you really feel embarrassed about you know you're a great experimentalist but maybe there was something else that struck you we all have these moments where it's like you know we just feel like everyone else knows and you're just really confused but I think and I, I remember spending all this time working up the nerve to ask and I really feel like once I did it was so much easier and I don't I feel like I don't even care if people think um silly because I've asked 60 of those questions at the end you know what I asked those stupid questions about you know how to screw this thing in and how to how to make like 
a shim out of aluminum foil because, you know, I'm just totally, you know, just don't know because I'm a dumb mathematician. But, you know, at the end of the day, I did some darn good science. And the reality is then people, I also feel great when people ask me the silly question. So I want to maybe say that there's really things that we're embarrassed that all of us don't know and that it's okay to ask. Um, I also want to say that in some ways molecular programming I think is a good place because there's no it's not like theoretical physics where there's this sort of like clear sense of the specific things that you need to know in this precise body of um, of knowledge that you need to have and it's really sort of almost clear how to get at these questions and so you either kind of know or you don't for us there are so many ways to ask the same question that it's actually really that almost everyone is if you're disciplined and thoughtful and really clear on what the good questions are you have something to contribute to those questions so you can come from many many different backgrounds and that's and so i think that's an exciting thing so find people that you like and trust to work with that have different skills than you don't be afraid to ask when things are um you know, difficult or as I said, if they're the silliest thing, things will be things will be hard that you didn't expect, and it will be you'll have those days. But um, and I don't want to sound Pollyannaish about it because, as I said, imposter syndrome doesn't go away; it just keeps going. I still feel like I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, why did they ask me to do this? Because I have no idea. But I think it just the key is to say some, you know, do some, try something. You don't have to say something, but try something and see how it goes. And that you have to remember that all the time. But I think the other part is in molecular programming, there is definitely not a right answer. There are so many ways to think about things that the question is really more, how do I, you know, figure out how to, how do I contribute? Because everyone has something really exciting to contribute. Kind of a shift in gears. What would you, uh, what do you think you might do if you weren't an academic? Um, are there any things you do in your free time that you might turn into a full-time career? So, I mean, I actually worked in Silicon Valley for a few years before I went to grad school, and I thought about being a programmer, and I liked, I liked writing search engines. Um, but, you know, that's kind of a boring answer, honestly. Um, and I also decided I didn't want to be a programmer because I just saw, I felt like it was like hard to do. I couldn't imagine doing it until I was like 65. It just seemed too too draining. Um, so actually, I really like to cook. So that was another thing that helped me learn to do experiments. And uh, actually, my mother's family is um, Italian and almost all of them before. My mom is a scientist, but almost everyone worked in the restaurant industry and also making wine. And uh, I don't know if I want to make my living doing that either. Um, but if I wasn't an academic, I'd probably be cooking a lot more cool stuff than I am now, at least that you could eat. We could, I hopefully cook some good stuff in my lab that in a different way. And uh, what would you tell your younger self back in 2000 or, or maybe when you were just finishing your PhD in 2007, um, if you could go back in time? Yeah, I, I, you know, I really don't know. I mean, I, there are definitely things I would have done differently, um, but I feel like it's just hard to, I mean, of course I know the answer to lots of problems that I wondered about for several years or that, you know, maybe I'd tell them about, you know, like... Yeah, about all, like, you know, whatever, you know, I tell them about Sherlock, right? If I knew about that in 2000, it'd be good, right? You know, so for example, you know, like some new DNA, you know, some new technology that we didn't have. But maybe more seriously, yeah, I, I feel like I don't ask that question. I think because I, maybe because I get asked what I'm going to tell, not my younger self, but younger students every day, right? That's kind of my job. And so I feel like 
um, I got a lot of great advice myself that I'm really grateful for. And I feel like um, having learned more, as I said, like how, what, you know, it, what is going to help you as a grad student? Maybe I'd tell myself those things. But as I said, luckily, and I'm not saying everyone has this, I think largely I had good advisors and good advice and that I feel like that was great. And in fact, in some ways, I feel like the advice other people tell me is much better than the advice I would ever tell myself because they have a different perspective. Do you have any regrets in graduate school? Um, I'm not sure I like the... I mean, I feel like regrets are terrible things to have because you can't get rid of them right there they can't be fixed I mean I certainly could say there are probably things I would have done differently um and I don't want I definitely don't want to say like things went perfectly and there would have been no way to know how to do anything else but I guess I just don't think about regrets in that way I mean I think there were maybe you know directions that I might have chosen like I think you know maybe I would have thought about trying to yeah I think I probably would have read more papers and thought about like really been less afraid to expand my thinking a little bit and trust myself like you know we do a lot of chemistry in my lab now and I feel like I think about how difficult it was for me to start thinking about and yeah I think I would have probably tried to learn things a little bit out of my comfort zone a little more but at the same time I think I did I learned a bunch of sort of interesting systems biology and control theory and like spent a while reading like interesting papers and it's not the same knowledge that I use now but it created a great foundation so I'm not sure that it's fair to have asked myself to shove in even more things that I, I learned either um, but that said I think if you have I mean it's fine to have regrets I just I don't know that I conceive of having specific things. I mean, I've definitely done my share of stupid specific things, but I don't know that they're really that exciting for for anybody to else to think about. Oh, I did tell you about the two-part epoxy. I wish I had actually figured gone and looked on the internet about how to use that before like spending a day crying about it. And looking to the future, uh just switching gears again a little bit. Uh, where do you see our field going? Do you see any maybe like killer applications for molecular programming, DNA nanotechnology? And are those applications something that drive you or more of just the beauty of uh, molecular programming? Um, I mean, I think, so I guess I was shocked when I started my job because I, I think what got me into molecular programming is I just found it intrinsically curious. So I guess what drives, it's not that what drives me is total curiosity, but I feel like some students really come and they say, look, I really want to cure cancer, right? And I don't, you know, they don't care about how they're going to do it, right? They're like, you know, tell me like, what is the right way there? That's what gets them up in the morning. And I'm definitely like, up more, I like to think about molecules and think about molecules doing interesting things. So then, but I do feel like, you could study anything and they're all so many problems will be interesting so i'd like to choose one that is not only interesting for me but also really has implications beyond that and i also increasingly feel like that's my job i mean both to you know raise research funding i need to make that case but also as <clears throat> a scientist entrusted with federal money and entrusted with you know educating students i feel like that's also an important part that science is is curiosity driven but as i said given the choice of a hundred great problems, I should pick the ones that of, you know, that are of being equally great that also have real, you know, some kind of impact going forward. That said, my lab does a lot of very basic, you know, design of and sort of asking about 
things that don't have any immediate application, but with the idea that if we could solve those, that they would have their uses. In terms of what I think are interesting, I mean, I think it's, there are things that I think are really interesting and exciting for the field, not all of which I necessarily feel like are the things I I'm the right person to do. I mean, I think the, you know, idea of using molecules for, you know, DNA storage, I'm not sure DNA is necessarily the right ultimate tool, but this idea of using heteropolymers to store information in mass and think about computing is, is cool. I'm still not sure where it's gotten a killer app, although, and so maybe it will, will not make it, but I feel like it's um, an interesting idea. I guess in terms of molecular programming, one of the things I think is potentially really trans deep and transcendent is this idea of really embedding molecules and logic into matter to instrument it. So I guess maybe the best example of that is something like DNA microscopy, where you're actually going to use like molecules and molecular operations to actually measure distance and think about the shape of something. And I think that's a, I actually think that's kind of a simple example, like in terms of how we embed molecules into materials, how we embed them into cells to instrument, for example, you know, recorders of data of, you know, what a cell is doing in terms of like, you know, transcribing or, you know, making DNA molecules that you then read out. Um, so, I mean, I think there are very many ways to think about that problem, but I really feel like that idea, I mean, you, you know, people always ask you, you're gonna, and you, I'm sure you've all been asked, are you going to use molecules to solve ordinary differential equations? <laughs> no, I mean, that's silly, right? I don't think that's right. Molecules are interesting for programming because they are part of matter and materials. I think those are the problems that excite me and I think are, are really um, interesting going forward. I mean, I think it's still, you know, it's it's useful to think about pushing the bounds of how much computing we can do in different ways. And But I feel like in the end, in terms of driving how molecular programming will change our experience and where it will sort of fit into the body of science as a whole, I think that is a place that I am really excited about. And I guess maybe the other, I mean, there are many ways to think about that sensor. So I guess those are all sort of, you know, how do you use computation to do things like sensing? Um, they all sort of, I think, integrating a lot of that together will be really powerful. And I think could change the way that we think about materials and certainly about biology and probably chemistry and um, going forward. I think that's a really exciting outlook for, for the field. Um, and, and with that, probably about time to wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca. This was an amazing start to our podcast series. Um, we hope you had a good time. Um, we certainly did. And uh, we'll be back in a few days with Brenda Rubenstein to follow up on her fantastic tutorial on the small molecule technology her lab uses for storage and computation. Um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, so um, goodbye from me. And um, well, goodbye from everyone else. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. And see you. See you shortly.